you've done it. You've crossed the billion dollar threshold. You're at four and a half billion. I know that the entrepreneurial journey is a roller coaster. What advice would you have for the next generation of founders of boutiques or CEOs who are running a boutique right now? What could you tell them? Gosh, look, I think anybody that does that is already going to be good at running money. So that's table stakes. It's the other things that you do around positioning your firm, making sure you've got the right target market for your products. We're not trying to sell to a advisor at JP Morgan because they can't buy our products. You know, when you're starting up, you're talking to the wealth manager that might have 25 to $100 million under management, has a natural proclivity to talking to boutiques. They're naturally going to be hard workers because it's hard evaluating investment products and it's time consuming. You know, somebody's just buying models from the home office, you know, identify them and move on because they're just not your prospect until you're at 20 or $30 billion under management and you're getting your funds or products added into the model. Hey, my name is Stacey Havener. I'm obsessed with startups, stories, and sales. Storytelling has fueled my success as a female founder in the toughest boys club, Wall Street. I've raised over 8 billion that has led to 30 billion in follow-on assets for investment boutiques. You could say against the odds. Yeah, understatement. I share stories of the people behind the portfolios while teaching you how to use story to shape outcomes. It's real talk here. Money, authenticity, growth, setbacks, sales and marketing are all topics we discuss. Think of this as the capital raising class you wish you had in college, mixed with happy hour. Pull up a seat, grab your notebook, and get ready to be inspired and challenged while you learn. This is the Billion Dollar Backstory Podcast. Xerox has a legendary sales training program. Who knew it could also create a successful asset management CEO? Today's guest is Steve Rogers, who joined his father-in-law's small muni bond shop for a brief sales stint and never left. Eventually, Steve took the reins as CEO of Shelton Capital Management, en route to building a $4.5 billion boutique investment platform. This is the story of Steve's career journey, but also the evolution of Shelton. At first blush, Shelton might look like many asset management firms, but I assure you, there's more to this team and this firm than meets the eye. Steve and his team challenged the status quo in an authentic, committed, professional, and personal way. Their client experience is full of positive surprises that I've been lucky to see firsthand and that we'll share with you today. It's a reminder that growth is about what makes you special and that magic is often found in the details. You know, I imagine it's pretty hard to differentiate in the copier biz. And if I think about it, I see a lot of similarities to asset management. It's easy to prioritize features and benefits and price. My conversation today with Steve reminds us all that people matter most. Without further ado, meet my friend, Steve Rogers. 
Steve, thank you so much for being here today. I had the pleasure of having a lovely lunch with you last year, and I'm excited to invite people into that conversation because I'm going to make you retell some of those stories today, if that's okay with you. They were just too good. So thank you for being here. Oh, Stacy, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here on your podcast. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Okay. So we're going to start with, of course, my favorite question. It was probably the first question I asked you when we sat down to have lunch together. What's your story? How did you get here? Here you here you sit as the CEO of a $4.5 billion boutique asset manager. I mean, did you know from the get when you were a kid, like, this is what you wanted to do? Absolutely not. <laughs> You know, I tell people I got dragged into this kicking and screaming. What your listeners should know is this is a family business. I went to work for my father-in-law, a guy by the name of Richard Shelton. And on a six-month, I'll work for you for six months. I'll spend a little time. I'll do what I can. And then had prearranged my last day. Uh, and that was the extent that I planned to spend in the financial services industry. So, What were you doing before that? I was in sales. I got out of undergrad and I spent time at 3M. And then I spent time in a manufacturer's rep business. And then at that time, when I took this job, I was at Xerox and I was essentially between territories. I was getting promoted from a position in Century City up to one to cover federal team in Northern California. That's amazing. Yeah. There was about a seven month gap between the end of the year where your territory rep budget ends effectively. Your uh, and then when somebody was retiring that had been in the federal territory for, you know, something like 20 years. So that was the gap that I went to work for Dick. And so you thought, I'm just going to come here and just like kind of do this little stint. And so what happened? So I didn't know the forces I was up against. We were newly married. Dick Shelton, he just wanted his daughter in San Francisco. We were living in Manhattan Beach at the time down in the L.A. area. So he just said, yep, come up, get an apartment, work for me for six months. It'll be great. Over the course of that period of time, I really hit it off with my father-in-law. And, you know, over the course of a number of years, he became one of my best friends. So when the six months came up, I really enjoyed what I was doing. We were raising a lot of money. You know, it was back in the days where you're dialing phone numbers, looking for individual investors. It was all check and app business. Loved it. And um, so I didn't take the job, the promotion at Xerox and just stayed on board. So that was a transition. Happened very fast. Were you actually just like dialing for dollars? Yeah. So we were running advertisements on the radio. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Way back in the day, Bob Brinker had a show and there was a Northern California radio personality, a guy by the name of Jim Jorgensen. And we were advertising our municipal bond fund, which was our lead product at that point. And municipal yields were up around 9, 10%, double tax-free in the state of California. So we'd collect ads on Sundays and then we'd you know, do all the return callbacks Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Wow. You know, pick up the initial calls the following Monday and then do all the callbacks for the week before. And, you know, we we're collecting money. We had great performance. We had a great product, still have a great product. It was dialing for dollars, old school. That is crazy. A lot of people I'm sure that are listening are nodding their head because that's how it was, right? I mean, that's how it was then. So what was it like? Because one of the things that, again, I sort of have, I have insights here, but what was it like being part of a family business? I myself am part of a family business. My entire family is a family of entrepreneurs. What was that like? It's a lot of pressure because 
you know, it's not just a job. You don't come into work every day and then go home and set it aside. You know, and this gets back to some of our approach to investing. It becomes very personal. It's a big challenge because, you know, from a career standpoint, you really have to be all in. And there, you know, family dynamics are always complicated. Some are easy, some are difficult. Being involved in the business is the only family member in that role. And a lot of extended family, That's there are just lots of challenges in that life experience. So in any event, I think it was very easy while Dick was around and he got sick, was diagnosed and passed away in under 30 days. So, you know, that was a big transition. After that, you know, we got through it. (laughs) It was really hard. But I guess the biggest piece of it is there's a difference between having a career where you're not connected to a family and being embedded in that where you're, at least for me personally, I felt like I was carrying a pretty substantial load for a lot of years. Are you an investment boutique looking to grow your business and need a little help? If you feel like you're fighting for the spotlight and, well, still stuck in the shadows of the bigs, join us in the Boutique Investment Collective, Havener's new membership community dedicated to the specialist in the investment industry. In the collective, we'll guide you through the billion-dollar blueprint we've used to help boutiques add over $30 billion in AUM. You'll refine your story, focus on your ideal target market, and practice your pitch. You'll rethink your marketing materials, rewrite your emails, and refresh your differentiators. We'll even help you step up your LinkedIn game and give your profile a makeover. You want to grow your biz, we've got your back. Learn more about the collective, the curriculum, and the amazing coaches who will help you on your journey. Visit havenercapital.com slash collective. High five. Hope to see you in a coaching session soon. I want to talk about this later, but you said something. It's my favorite line on your website. Your website's really great, but there's this one line there where you say, and I have to read it because it's just so good. Well, maybe we'll have to talk about it now because I'm reading it. You say, to us, our job is personal and important. And I get that. Like, you know, to me, it is personal. Business is personal. And I think you have so many people that would say, don't do business with family. Business isn't personal. And I just wonder how you respond to that, because that does not seem to be your vibe at all as a person, but also as a firm. I think we try to embed a family-like perspective into our culture, and we're very specific about how we identify our culture and communicate that through the organization. So, look, I think it plays out being personally invested in our employees' success, ties back to our core value of commitment, being very personally invested in how we perform as a manager. There are people that work for big shops that can leave, on the, at least on the West Coast, at one fifteen and go out and play 18 holes and be home and back to work the next day. The hours are tough, but a quarter till six in the morning is usually when you get going. And it's very much a job for us. For the many years that I worked in San Francisco, I walked through a lot of dark streets in downtown San Francisco (laughs) and very early ran the portfolios until the one o'clock close and then tried to run the business from one o'clock until, you know, whatever time. So, you know, that's personal. And then the last element of that that I want to speak to is that whether it's somebody that finds us online and buys a fund directly for their IRA or for their regular account or through an advisor, that's their business and it's very personal to them. So we don't want to lose track of what we do and how important it is to the underlying investors in our funds and separate accounts. Yeah. And I think that's actually a good dovetail 
kind of back to how you built the business, if we can go to that story for a few minutes, because you mentioned that, you know, in the early days when you first joined Shelton, it was radio shows and individual investors and a muni bond flagship. Now, obviously, you've expanded. You're an institutional asset manager. You have more than muni bonds. Like, what was that evolution like? I mean, can you get back to those early days? This is billion-dollar backstory. So do you remember what it was like building towards that first billion? Well, it was slow. (laughs) (laughs) Best advice ever right there, Steve. It takes so much more time than you think to get to the billion. Yeah. So if you think about the way that I described the business, initially, the firm was founded as almost a direct retail family office type of firm. So our original partners were high net worth individuals around the San Francisco Bay Area, friends and family that helped fund the initial seed capital for the initial mutual funds. And when when I took over the business, when Dick passed away, we had a lot of accounts that were between 10 and $30 million. They're one family. They're just, you know, huge investors in what we did. Wow. And then in addition to that, we had a lot of, you know, $25,000, $200,000 accounts as well, which, you know, is obviously a function of the check and app business. So we provided what feels like a private client office where when people call Shelton Capital Management, a live person answers the phone. They're talking to somebody today here in Colorado. Back in the 90s, it was somebody in San Francisco who can you know, provide a very high level of customer service to an individual that you really can't get anywhere else in the industry. Back to you know, but the transition of the business was the families were very supportive through this, you know, what I'll call tragedy when Dick passed away. So they stuck with us, but the redemptions that came, somebody would be sick. I'd get a call and say, hey, I got some bad news. I'm dying. Oh, gosh. I got to pull my $25 million out and we're going to consolidate it for the estate attorneys. You know, we lost a lot of capital over the course of, you know, eight or nine years in very large chunks. All the while, we were trying to open twenty-five dollars and $50,000 accounts in direct app. So the big transition in the business happened actually through, you know, an effort around an acquisition that was much more focused on the advisor channel than the traditional channel. So in the sit-down strategy discussions, it was clear we needed to expand our product line. We needed to pivot away from the direct retail into the advisor channels and really invest our outreach into those categories. And we've continued to service all the shareholders and a lot, you know, even today, I think we have 22,000 direct shareholder accounts, but our focus really is on the advisor channel if you think about the very high net worth people, you know, in those accounts evolving and leaving ultimately because of mostly estate issues and duck kicking underwater, trying to open up enough accounts to keep up with it, eight or nine years later, we were essentially in the same place. Wow. So this is 2009. We we're about $430 million in total AUM with some fairly low margin products and just starting to expand that reach. So, uh, friend of mine and a mentor, Julie Lecta from Paul Hastings, put me together with Dennis Clark, who ran what became Schwab Institutional's amazing human being. He came in with a world of connections and you know just took off and ran with it and has built an incredible sales distribution force and has been a wonderful partner all the way along. So when we navigated that direction, we never left the shareholder servicing. You can still call our 800 number, at least during business hours and get a live person you know, to help you out. But now we take those calls from advisors as well. And then we've built a sales and marketing organization 
underneath that advisor channel. So, you know, that transition with the products and the people really kind of sprung Shelton Capital Management forward. I love that. And Dennis is such a great human. That's a perfect description of him. Just forget all the business high fives you could give him. He's just a great guy. And you do have a really special partnership. So I want to go back to something you said, just for people who are thinking about that slow build and how difficult it is. Well, first question I have is, was was acquisition a strategy that you, you've employed throughout Shelton's growth? Were you always kind of acquisitive and grabbing and bringing firms in that had a good cultural fit, but also a good product fit? I think that's my question. Like, how important was that? How big were you when you did that first acquisition? It was 2009. So the first acquisition we did... Okay, so it was there, around $400 million. Yeah, and we acquired five mutual funds from a firm called Securities Management and Research, which was a broker-dealer owned by an insurance company. And the person that ran their mutual fund group wanted to retire, and his last to-do was to sell off these products. So you know, at that point in time, I was a lead portfolio manager on the Shelton Core Value Fund, the Equity Income Fund. And, you know, it was about $35 million, five stars. We had really good performance, worked very hard on that, but just couldn't get a lot of traction because of the size of the fund. So we consolidated three equity funds into that portfolio, and that got us up over $100 million. And again, all their shareholders were very happy with the portfolio management and the strategy of the fund. It's back in the day where you could go out and sell a value portfolio as a standalone product. (laughs) That was the very first one was that SMNR. And we've done a handful of those since. But Stacey, you know, we 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 look at our organic distribution, which is sales and marketing, and our inorganic, which is acquisition. So, and then I've always managed the inorganic portion. And some of that's culture fit. A lot of it is, you know, people that are stepping out of the industry, they're retiring, they've been around forever, they're looking for somebody to take over the business. So usually the conversations I'm having are whether or not Shelton and the platform is a good fit for the last, you know, 24, 36, or 48 months, somebody spends doing what they're doing. So we're very focused, we have to be focused on both. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's super interesting because when you think about boutiques, and I want to talk about the future of boutiques with you. But when you think about boutiques, wow, the future is a little bit hazy. And I'm probably being Pollyannic when I say hazy. I mean, it could, some people might say it's bleak because here you are, like you described, if you're the founder, you're a specialist in something and you've built a really great business. If you don't have a clear succession plan, what are you going to do? And it reminds me a lot of what advisors and, and you know, have to go through as well because they're building a great business and then what? And so I love to see firms like Shelton stepping in and saying, hey, we can have a home for you here. We are a platform for boutiques. And I think that's really empowering for me as somebody who believes in boutiques that you have another option besides just selling to a big, huge behemoth. Yeah, look, you know, I'm talking my own game, but I absolutely think boutiques are the right space. The future is hazy. You know, there are lots of challenges in the industry. Even at four and a half billion, it's very hard for us to get attention from the major platforms. If you look at the large wires, we're just barely touching 
on access to those for, you know, one or two of our products. And so, you know, we're focused on kind of this middle market platforms. They're great partners, they're amazing partners, but for any boutique, one of the biggest challenges is distribution and shelf space, and it, and it continues to get tougher. I think that's really well said. You know, there was this article that came out not too long ago, and I printed it. I don't know what I did with it. I probably threw it away because it was basically like, it was like, you either have to adopt AI or some, all this like really, I'm using quotes again, innovation, kind of like high tech. And of course... I don't agree that that's the only path. I still think that people do business with people and there is a growth trajectory that supports that idea. You don't have to just go do crypto and Bitcoin and do AI and do all this crazy tech stuff to grow. And I love to hear you say that you're a home for people who share that that belief as well. Well, look, there are lots of successful strategies in portfolio management and really... I believe it comes down to the quality of the manager and just how invested they are in their portfolios and their holdings. So if you're a successful portfolio manager at Shelton Capital, um, and I've had these conversations, um, you know, you, you never really go on vacation. If you're in Hawaii, you're up at 3.30 in the morning for market open and you're living and breathing news feeds, you know, 24-7. So that, you know, those are those are table stakes. AI is revolutionary. Um, you know, we've been dabbling in elements of AI and what does this mean for our industry and how can we use it? I went into my chat GPT and had three, I think it was two page articles written on why you should use one of our funds. And chat GPT did an amazing job. <laughs> I sent it off to Dennis and our, the, you know, the head of our marketing and I just said, hey, this looks pretty good. <laughs> this is, you know, it saved me two hours. So this is amazing. There's a lot of interesting, amazing applications. Frankly, I'm I'm afraid of it because of its ability to mimic people and the traditional tools that you use to ensure that you're talking to the right person with their assets. So, you know, like at LexisNexis test, if you tried to pretend you were me, you're not going to remember that you grew up on 207 Thomas Drive. But ChatGPT might figure that out and be able to respond accurately to that question. So they can trick most of the scenarios where two strangers communicating, trying to develop a bond of trust to wire out $50,000. You know, that's going to get progressively more complicated. That's a rabbit hole. We could go down pretty deep. But I have to laugh. I have to laugh. I hope you're okay with me doing this. Absolutely. Because you just did exactly what Every portfolio manager who's listening to this is now like, oh my gosh, this is brilliant. I'm going to ask ChatGPT, if they haven't already done this, by the way, I'm going to ask ChatGPT to write this and send it to my head of marketing. And every marketing person listening to this is now banging their head on the table saying, please do not empower the portfolio <laughs> managers to write these emails. That is so great. So by the way, those three letters, they never got sent back revised. They just, they <laughs> yeah, properly they just... went into the right file. <laughs> I was amazed at the technology. And of course, you know, we're, you know, in terms of pattern recognition, speech recognition and earnings reports, you know, there's a lot of interesting research around that. And then if you think about chat GPT, that's a very public domain, right? So whatever work you do in a public domain somebody else owns that. You know, I think most of the expense in this is developing your own technology 
kind of within your own walls with your own data to try and develop a competitive edge around that. But, you know, I think back when I see these articles, we were told that if we didn't learn how to program in high school, we were going to get left out of the economy. Nobody anticipated Microsoft Word at that point. I mean, it was, you know, crazy. Excel, you know, invented after, you know, learned how to program in basic in whatever ninth grade or whatever. I mean, not to date myself, but the first programs I wrote were on cassette tapes, you know, and they, they said, if you don't figure this out, you're done. And so, look, I think these are going to be new tools. They're, you know, in time, you know, it'll be a brief trading opportunity probably. And then, you know, people will take for granted that we all have our own knowledge processors, if you will. Totally. You know, here's the thing. This is totally anti-AI because I want to go back to the personal element, the authenticity that you talked about that's, you know, one of your core values at Shelton. So here's what chat GPT can't do. When I came out to work with your team last year, before I arrived, you sent me a package. I actually did an unboxing of this package that I received in the mail from Shelton. I love that video. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, I'll have to put the link of it in the show notes. And Here's the thing. I had never done an unboxing video before. I also had no idea what was going to be in this package when I opened it. And it was the most thoughtful. I don't even want to use the word swag because it was branded Shelton. But the whole experience of what you sent was different than anything that I've seen in asset management. I mean, to give you listeners a teaser, one of the things you know I love storytelling There was a Moleskin book in there that had this great storytelling quote. There were bookmarks with my picture on them. I mean, which was kind of like shocking for me to see, but with QR codes to some of the blogs that everyone at Shelton really liked. I mean, it was so special. And ChatGPT and AI cannot do that. It's different. It's personal. It's people. Do you do that? Like, talk to me about that whole thing. Well, full disclosure, not only can chat GPT not do that, but I can't really do that. It was, no. you know, that was the brilliance <laughs> of the team here at Shelton. But um, look, you know, it's like everybody's got a sleeve of golf balls. Everybody's got a moles, you know, whatever it is. We spent a lot of time talking about packaging and look and feel and what is the experience of receiving a gift. And among other things, I happened to, I was forced to buy a new kind of cell phone by my family because the family text chat, I was like the dark sheep of the family. So (laughs) I had to switch technologies, but the box that this phone came in was epic. And I brought it in and I said, what if we thought about delivering swag and packaging experience like this tech company does with a cell phone? And they took that and they converted it into what I thought was an amazing package. Amazing. Your video was shared by everybody at Shelton. We loved it. It was so sweet of you to do. We got a ridiculous number of responses from that. And, you know, including where's where's my box? Where's mine? <laughs> right. Well, everyone's going to want one. But here's the thing. I mean, first of all, as somebody who works in the sales and marketing side of asset management, to have your CEO say, hey, like, here's this amazing packaging. I want to do something like this. Like, that's a dream. I mean, your marketing team probably ran before you could change your mind because asset management is not known for that. This is not an industry known for that. You know, consumer products, sure. Fashion, yeah, or like all, you know, but not 
finance. Not finance. And so to me, what you said a second ago where you said, what if, that is such an amazing question. As an entrepreneur to ask yourself, what if, why not? Don't you think? Because look at what happened from that. The team did an amazing job. If you ask the right questions as a CEO and you have the right team, you're going to be way more successful than Shelton Capital Management. I mean, we get lucky every once in a while. It really is about empowering people, bringing in very talented people. You saw their work and it's they've done an amazing job on several different uh, several different levels. And not being afraid to do something that hasn't been done. Not being afraid to borrow something from another industry, right? Because you could have said, well, I mean, that's really cool, but like we don't do that in asset management. But you didn't. You challenged the status quo. Yeah. And we didn't ask how much the box costs, you know, which is what a finance person always asks. Let's just make this great. And by the way, personal, you know, it's a way to communicate what we're doing and why it's important to us and, you know, as an organization. And I'm curious, because you said you could still call Shelton and a real person answers the phone, which again, also ties into this whole idea of business is people doing business with people. How else does that play out for you? I mean, there's a lot of people that would say right now, oh, like you don't have to go and meet face to face with your clients anymore. Like I have a feeling I know where this is going to go, but how has that permeated the culture in other ways too? From a culture standpoint, we have four core values that we try and manage around, that we try and demonstrate every day, that we ask people to bring to work with them every day. But it's, and we've talked about this a little bit, growth. Our scoreboard is growth of AUM and growth of revenue. And it's, you know, it really is our scoreboard. So, we, you know, everybody works hard. Are we doing the right things to accomplish the goals? Commitment. We want everybody to be 100% committed to the goals and objectives of the company, if we decide we're going to do something like that package and everybody, you know, rolls up their sleeves and they try and make it perfect, which is a big ask. And that's not a common element of working in corporate America. I found, you know, it requires a quid pro quo from the management team. And we're 100% committed to the goals and objectives of our employees. So somebody works at Shelton because a career and a family combination intersected with a need at Shelton Capital. And they landed here for, you know, we hope 30 years, but it might be a couple of years. It might be five years. We don't know. But if there's ever a time where that family and career goal doesn't match Shelton any longer, that's not a misdemeanor or a felony or a crime against humanity. We say, hey, hold up your hand and say, I can't be committed. Jump into our LinkedIn. Oh, you're looking for a marketing job and you want to talk to Stacy. We'll make an introduction. We don't take it personally. We're trying to help people overall with their with their uh, growth. That's nice of you. You know, anyway, that's the two parts of commitment. And people have done an amazing job here under that umbrella. Authentic client service. We're honest about who we are, what we are, what we can do, what we're good at, what we're not good at. We try and refer people in different directions. You know, every once in a while you get stuck in this conversation like, hey, maybe we could do this. Nope, that's not what we do. But Stacy's really good at that or, you know, pick anybody, you should talk to that person. So, and then, you know, authenticity also, you know, people at Shelton genuinely like helping other people. That's one of the things we look for in resumes. You know, there's something about the resume that says I was involved in my community, whatever that community is. We don't care if it's a school or a church or a nonprofit or whatever it is, but something that shows that they care enough about the 
uh, world around them that they've reached out of their inner circle to help. And again, that and commitment combined, if you've got everybody firing on the same rhythm and same, you know, all the cylinders going, it creates for much better workspace, I think. Professionalism and compliance is the last one. And that sounds like two different things. But in our industry, you really can never be considered a professional unless you're fully bought into the kind of the world of compliance, both the spirit of the rule and the rules themselves. So we don't, we just don't operate outside of the middle. And those are the four things, commitment, authentic client service growth, professionalism, compliance. And when I take new employees out to lunch, which I try and take every new employee out to lunch on their first or second day, I say, hey, your job is to decide what kind of work environment you want to be in and walk through the door with that every morning. And we'll all have good days and bad days, but you're the person that gets to make this place what you want it to be. And if it doesn't become that, it's your responsibility to ask why. So anyway, those are our four core values. I love them, of course. And I think sometimes too, you hit on something really interesting, which is each of those core values is powerful on its own. But there's also a certain level of magic when you sort of cross them with each other, right? Because you said something that comes up a lot in our industry, which is authenticity and compliance. And if you say authenticity, cross it with compliance, people are like, meh doesn't work. They cancel each other out. (laughs) Can't compute for like bad gateway or whatever those error messages are. But can you talk about that? Because here's the thing, like, I disagree. I disagree that the culture of compliance that you spoke to or that our industry upholds as a profession, I disagree that that means you can't be a real person and you can't be authentic. And I wonder how you would respond to that. Look, I think you have to be authentic. Compliance as it gets filtered through marketing message is complicated because you know everybody that works for regulator is trying to fit whatever you're doing inside of a box and it's either okay and inside of the box or not okay and outside of the box. So I think as long as if you're authentic in what you're bringing to the market, you don't need to stretch any compliance rules. I don't see any conflict. I think you absolutely should do what you do. And then remember that a lot of compliance processes are rules that are intended to do something and nobody really ever thinks about the externalities. So you've got to find ways to skate around those. So as a startup, as a boutique, you know, the compliance world is the other, you know, the other piece that's really hard to manage. And frankly, they're generally designed to help organizations with multiple layers of people exist, you know, human frailties, people make mistakes. And when the when you've got a big firm that you know might be 10 layers deep, a mistake in the middle can really be dramatic. And compliance rules are set up to manage that disconnection. Whereas in a boutique, you know, it's just a handful of people sitting around a table doing the best they can, you know, wrestling with something that was really designed to deal with an organization like JP Morgan or Bank of America or you know, any other mega financial. So it's just part of the ecosystem that the current in the river we have to swim against. But look, it comes naturally. If you're an honest, good person, you're committed to your community, you're authentic, and you care about growth, it really is a natural fit overall. We don't have compliance challenges. No. And the other piece of it, too, that I would add to what you said, I'm a yes and on this, which is you can share parts of your culture, your philosophy, all the things we're talking about here. That's not really like compliance land, right? That's just 
entrepreneur land. That's philosophy. That's values. That's team dynamics. That's what you stand for. What you believe, what you believe that's different than what someone else believes, who you are as a human being. All of those things make compliance a lot easier. Where it gets dicey and where you have to be more careful, in my opinion, is when you start getting into the markets and the portfolios and certainly around performance. But that's not the only thing that we should be talking about as professionals. So I'm going to totally blow up your spot. When we were in the green room, you shared with me that you've taken up climbing. Uh, yes. Right? So, and I said, me too, with my six-year-old. You can imagine the level of uh, expertise required for that. But needless to say, like, if you wanted to share how climbing, you know, inspires you or how it's similar to your journey as an entrepreneur, all of that is authentic It also probably speaks to people who maybe have also taken up climbing or love climbing themselves. I guess what I'm saying is like there's a whole area of content and conversation that you can have that is safe from the compliance kind of, you know, minefields that we all worry about. Yeah. I mean, when you start talking about the performance, kind of the speeds and feeds of what you're doing, anything promissory into the future, what you believe might happen next anything that seems to lead to what a performance outcome might be, that's obviously, you can't, you just can't do that. But you can really talk about who you are and what you're trying to accomplish and what kind of community you're trying to build inside of your firm and why that's personal or important to the person you're talking to in helping them do the same for, for their clients. So it's a free pass. It absolutely is an area which... There's no box that somebody's trying to fit you inside of that for. No, it's a great open lane. And I loved what you said as well, which about being brave enough to say what you don't do and who you're not for and being brave enough to say, we don't do that, but so-and-so over here does. And they're a great firm and, and you should give them a call. And in fact, let me make an introduction. All of these things that we're talking about today again, to me, and you're going to laugh, feel very rebel in an industry that doesn't do this stuff, right? And I love that. I just love the way you lean into some of those parts of just being a real, you know, a group of real people showing up for real clients. So thank you for sharing all of that. I have one question that I want to end with before we do like a little speed round here. But the question I have, I mean, it's not groundbreaking or anything. It's a common question on a podcast, but I think it's super important for other boutiques. You've done it. You've crossed the billion dollar threshold. You're at four and a half billion. I know that the entrepreneurial journey is a roller coaster. What advice would you have for the next generation of founders of boutiques or CEOs who are running a boutique right now? What could you tell them? Gosh, Look, I think anybody that does that is already going to be good at running money. So that's table stakes. It's the other things that you do around positioning your firm, making sure you've got the right target market for your products. We're not trying to sell to a advisor at JP Morgan because they can't buy our products. You know, when you're starting up, you're talking to the wealth manager that might have 25 to $100 million under management, has a natural proclivity to talking to boutiques. They're naturally going to be hard workers because it's hard evaluating investment products and it's time consuming. 
you know, somebody's just buying models from the home office, you know, identify them and move on because they're just not your prospect until you're at 20 or $30 billion under management and you're getting your funds or products added into the model. So that would be, you know, part of it. And I guess the other thing, and really any success I've had has all been driven by the decisions about the people that I've brought around me. Those are the decisions that matter. And taking advantage of the brilliance of the people that you find along the way, you know, is a difference maker. It's a hard voice to hear. You got to listen. This is me. Or I'm going to throw my mic down. Sometimes like my guests <laughs> say something so amazing, I'm drop my own mic just in solidarity of how awesome it was. And what I love about that, you know, we talk all the time about finding your true fans. And so again, it takes it right back to the people, which we've started this podcast with. And now we're ending with it. I love that. And it also reminds us that our true fans, yes, they are our clients. And you talked about that, right? Focusing on the right target market of clients for you, where you are in your evolution. But your true fans, in fact, your biggest, most valuable true fans are your team. They're the people who show up every day and they give you not their assets to manage, but their time and their attention and their commitment all of that. Like, I love that, Steve. That was a great place to end. Their best ideas. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to do something fun. Not that the whole podcast hasn't been fun, but this is a little, a little something different here. So this is my version of Proust's questionnaire inspired by James Lipton on Inside the Actor's Studio. I always wanted to have that show for fund managers. And so they're not rapid fire, but you know, it's just kind of a quick run through of some questions here designed to help us get to know you a little better. Okay. Start with a little bit of a, an easy one. What book inspires you? That's the easy one. Yeah. I was hopeful it was going to be easy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, when I read for pleasure, mostly history. So I would say Vicksburg comes to mind, which is the story of Grant's siege on Vicksburg, which was a town on the Mississippi River that was fortified by slave labor and considered impenetrable and the bravery of the men that, you know, kind of broke the spine of the South in terms of their logistics effort is almost impossible to describe, you know, so that's crazy. The anecdotes and stories inside of that book make you wonder how people lived in the 19th century and just how strongly they felt for the cause they were fighting in. Undaunted Courage, which is Meriwether Lewis's Thomas Jefferson, the Lewis and Clark adventure. Ah. Those guys paddled up the Missouri, you know, in the hopes, you know, because nobody knew what was up there and that we were negotiating with Canada over what was going to be the United States and what was going to be Canada and all the crazy things those people did. They carried boats over the Rocky Mountains. Unbelievable fortitude. So inside of history, I think that that... um, those are the two books that come to mind right away. And then from a business standpoint, this is really boring, but just Traction by Gina Wickman. Oh, you mean this? Yeah, it's a cute <laughs> visual. She reached to her bookcase behind her and grabbed the Traction book. A fabulous framework, isn't it? Yeah. So look, there are probably a lot of business books out there that do something similar, but this has helped organize a lot of time consuming activities that that suck up the energy in the room. You know, everybody's got a different idea on how to do a performance view. We're going to go to this page and we're going to do this performance review. And by the way, it's very effective. 
and then we're going to move on. So it's just a how-to for somebody to run a business, not perfectly applicable for our industry because the structure that they talk about kind of assumes operations, manufacturing, finance, and sales, where we don't really you know manufacture widgets, but we use that in our organization, our team leadership, and have for seven or eight years, huge contributor to our success. I love that. We're two years in on the EOS journey, and I second that motion for all entrepreneurs to take a hard look at it because I think you said something, well, you said a lot of great things, Steve, but one of the things you said is performance is table stakes. It's all the other things that kind of contribute or detract from your success as an entrepreneur in the boutique asset management industry. And traction helps you with those other things. Absolutely. Right, that EOS framework. So that's awesome. We're gonna have to talk EOS one of these days. Okay, next question. What place inspires you? This is a moving place. I've got two answers to that type of question. First, like we like being outdoors. By the way, I'm climbing indoors, not outdoors. And I give my wife all the... (laughs) Actually, my daughter and my wife get all the credit for that. But um, we used to do some backcountry skiing anywhere in the mountains in the winter, especially in the afternoon with the Alpen Glow. I've always done my best thinking in the outdoors. We do a lot of hikes around Denver. There's a loop around Red Rocks, which I think is super inspiring. And halfway through is up on a plateau that overlooks the city of Denver. Great place to contemplate what you're going to accomplish you know, that week and that month. And then the second way I would answer that, I'm a parent of older children. So my youngest is, well, they're all mid to late 20s, but any place where I have my whole family under the same roof is my happy place. So it becomes very rare over time. You know, that's, I guess, you know, we do a lot of verbos and try and reel them in for a long weekend. And that's just so much fun. Yes. Oh, how special. I love that. Great answers. Okay. Now a little bit of a twist here. So let's pretend you're walking out at Red Rocks. Let's just say that, you know, Red Rocks, it's the Steve Rogers night. And you're going to walk out into that wonderful, what do you even call that? Amphitheater? What do you call Red Rocks? Amphitheater? Yeah, amphitheater. So you walk out and there's all these, you know, fans are going to hear you give a wonderful talk about building a boutique asset management company. What's your walkout anthem? Okay, well, I feel like picking a walkout anthem is the same as giving yourself a nickname. If I got a pick, it'd be All-Star by Smash Mouth oh. <laughs> for two reasons. The chorus, at least. If you look, some of those lyrics, I don't know if they apply or not. Maybe they do more than I'd like to think. But um, that's a great tune. And then the other element is they use that for uh, Shrek, if you remember that movie. Yes. You can watch the first like two minutes of that movie, and it's a reminder not to take yourself too seriously. So anyway, that'd be a fun one. What a good twist. I love that. That's a great one. I Oh, so good, Steve. Okay, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Gosh, I don't want to do anything other than what I do. But when I was in high school, Tony, the pizza guy, I worked in restaurants all the way from the time I lied about my age and got a job. Tony, the pizza guy, offered me a pizza restaurant. You know, he's like, why don't you skip college and I'll, I'll put you in business and you can run your own pizza place. He was a good businessman, a great guy, but I love pizza. I guess that's, you know. You'd have a pizza shop. Yeah, uh, maybe a chain, but yeah, I'd like to make, it's all about the crust. If you nail the crust. This is very true. Everybody does tomatoes and mushrooms and, you know, whatever it is. Similarly, if you get the crust right, you're going to make it. It's the basics. It's the foundation. 
of the whole darn thing. The primary difference with that business as well is at the end of the day, when you've delivered your last pizza, you're done. The dough's ready for the next day. And you walk home without a list of things to do. Whereas running assets, you're always worried about the next Fed meeting. You're worried about what's going on in Europe. You're worried about what's going on in Asia, trade. There's always the horizon of worry. So that's very different, I think, than serving pizzas. If you had a pizza shop, you'd probably like trading, I don't know, futures on cows and crops. and. Well, yeah. <laughs> you'd make it complicated. You'd find something to worry about. You'd have to be selling a lot of pizza to worry about grain futures. <laughs> So that'd be okay. When you're hedging out your flower risk, yeah, you've, you've exactly. made it. You sold a few pizzas. Okay. So opposite of this would be what profession would you not like to do? This is not the current name. And I apologize for not knowing what the name of this job is today. But the worst job in the world is the person we used to call the meter maid. Is that a meter person now that hands out parking tickets? Oh, yeah. Like parking. Wow. You're right. Handing out misery all day long. That'd be awful. And love and respect what they do, but I'm in and out of airports all the time. The poor TSA people. Uh, thankless. Well, certainly, you know, worse than thankless. And, um, you know, they spend most of their day making sure nothing happens and thank God nothing happens. So it, I think giving people parking tickets would be worse than that. Oh my gosh. Okay, that was a great answer. Okay, so the last one, a contemplative one here. What do you want people to say about you after you've retired or left the industry? What I'd like them to say would be about Shelton Capital, and it's that they learned something special or it gave them a leg up in their career or helped them balance their life, that they got more out of it than they put in. Oh, I love that. That was a great way to end. I'm sure they're already saying that, Steve. I think you've built an amazing business, but more than that, you've built an amazing culture. And I've been lucky to see it firsthand, and I'm so thrilled that we're giving people a glimpse of that magic. So thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, it's been great being with you, and I really appreciate it. It's great to see you and uh, spend time. Thank you. Awesome. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment values may fluctuate, and past performance is not a guide to future performance. All opinions expressed by guests on the show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those at their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement by Stacey Havener or Havener Capital Partners.